Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Expert Minutes. I'm John McGuire, and today I have an amazing guest. Ross Kemp is an English author, award-winning presenter, and investigative journalist. He won a BAFTA for his documentary, Ross Kemp on Gangs. Ross Kemp followed this up with documentaries including Ross Kemp in Afghanistan, Ross Kemp in Search of Pirates, and Ross Kemp Extreme World. Ross has succeeded in pivoting his career and exploring different avenues, all with huge success, from acting to his award-winning documentaries. Ross, how are you doing today? I'm good, John. How are you? It sounds very eponymous, doesn't it? It's Ross Kemp this, Ross Kemp that. I think that was generally the broadcasters wanted to put my name on it. It wasn't my insistence, I can assure you. You know, there's a lot of power in the name. There's a lot of power. That's the thing that draws people into it. And it's also, to a degree, a certain sign of quality. Uh, You know, your career (laughs) started in television. You were an actor. And now you've pivoted to doing documentaries, but you're doing documentaries in a way where you're shining light on a lot of subjects that are no fluff. There are a lot of serious subjects between the gangs, the war zones, and your latest thing, Britain's Tiger Kings. You put it in the time and you really get to the harder matter with a lot of the people that you interview. So what's that like for you? Because you do get a truly unprecedented level of access to the people that you talk to. Mainly it's teamwork. I think the attractive thing about making documentaries has always been to me that it's a real team effort. And that's not to say that the acting isn't, but it, it's in a very different way. And also, you know, if you are in places like Syria and Iraq or in the Congo or in El Salvador, Mexico, things go wrong. They can go very badly wrong. So you have to have a lot of trust with the people that you work with. And in answer to your question, I think that the trust and the teamwork that developed over the years with the people that I work with, that in a way engenders trust from your subject, the person that you're speaking to, or the people that you want to get to speak to. And I've always said that I will stand by the fact that if anybody in an interview says something when they don't want it to be in, unless they are, you know, a child killer or a murderer, then we generally hold to that because I I see no point in going against my word if I can possibly help it. So we've always got people to come to us because over the years, we've trodden a path where we've been pretty honest with people. And often in this world, that's in short supply, particularly with the people that we talk to. Well, a lot of people love to throw the word integrity around, but to actually follow that's the letter of what it means and what it stands for. That speaks a lot about your character and the character of the programs that you're putting out there to the world. Now, with that being said, what do you think it is that leads these people to really trust you and let their guard down? I mean, granted, you're not really putting out there anything salacious or something that's going to make a person look bad unless, you know, they're a child killer. John, a lot, a lot of the time that people will make themselves look bad if they're bad. You don't really have to do that much. (laughs) That's true. I've always believed there's an an old saying, you know, we were given two ears and one mouth and you should use them accordingly. I haven't always done that. 
also I would suggest that my integrity, particularly when I was younger, was definitely dubious and questionable. But as I've grown older, and I do think that's as a result of making documentaries and seeing how different people exist on this planet, and obviously being faced with life and death situations occasionally, that has given me an integrity that I lacked before I started making documentaries. But I would say this, to earn someone's trust, you have to spend time with them and you have to get to know them. And that's not when the cameras are running. And I think you have to be interested in people. And I think that also works uh, for actors as well. Most of the actors that I've worked with and known are genuinely interested in the way that, that we work as human beings, what makes us feel certain ways, why we, we act in certain ways, react in certain ways. And I think you have to have a fascination for humankind to want to make the kind of documentaries that my team and I make. I could totally see that. And especially with something like what you're doing with the Tiger Kings, you have the American version, which we've all seen. And you're right, two years in the mouth, you're going to make a fool of yourself if that's what you're intended to do. There was a certain level of exploitation that I felt like came with that version, because ultimately, although the characters in it were doing what they were going to do anyway, there's still a certain mm -hmm. like watching a car crash aspect to it. Of the clips that I've seen of your version, you bring a very strong level of humanity to not just the people who are tending to these animals, but also you add depth to the animals themselves because you're looking at them from the standpoint of these are massive, majestic creatures. And what is their role being in our society? Well, yeah, you have to ask. The big question is, are they there solely for human entertainment or is there... Uh, some sort of conservation going on or will we if we carry on at the rate we're going you know I've been out to Mozambique and, and you know I've seen slaughtered elephants and it's pretty inhumane way as well the way that they're killed by the poachers you know if we carry on at the present rates for all big cats and for elephants rhinos etc they won't be around in 50 years and will the only people the only way that we'll get to see those creatures it will be because somebody kept them in their backyard effectively I think that was a really important question that had to be asked when we were, were doing our documentary. And I, I think we touched on it. I think, you know, you, you have to be, I work very close with a guy called Johnny McDevitt, uh, who directed the show. And I've worked with him in other parts. We did the Extreme World together as well. We both decided that uh, with it, the producers, that was a really important question that had to be touched on. If you were going to look at people, the bizarre people that, uh, often bizarre people that, that want to keep dangerous wild animals in their back gardens or in their houses, in fact, in some cases with the snakes or other reptiles. We have to ask the big question, you know, what is the future for that species? Is this the right way of safeguarding them? Or would it possibly be better for that animal while it's alive to live in, you know, kind of, they can't be put back into the wild because they wouldn't survive. So maybe there is a halfway house with these larger sanctuaries often in the close to the country of origin for that particular species or actually in that country of origin where they can roam free but they will always rely on human beings because all of the animals that we met had been brought up in captivity so with that being said you know i watched you walk into a lion's den and feed a lion on a stick now this lion is massive you know you are constantly putting your life in danger to tell these stories you come up from acting and the path of many actors is if they're going to go into documentary style filmmaking or TV series, as it were, you know, they're doing food tourism. They're doing things that are not going to 
by and large, put their life in harm's way at all times. What led you to the style of documentary filmmaking that you're doing? A complete fluke is the honest answer. And I would love to do food show, please. If you could get me one, John. <laughs> I would literally bite your head off and the hamburger that was in it. How did it happen? Basically by accident. I was asked while I was under contract to ITV many moons ago to step in at the last moment to replace a presenter who dropped out. I had never presented anything before. I just, I was on an acting contract and I ended up in the United States of America and I met a member of the Bloods who'd been shot 28 times. And I said, that's absolute rubbish. No one can survive being shot that many times. I've subsequently met people who've been shot more than that and survived. There's a <laughs> British guy I know that's been shot more than, but th this wasn't obviously uh, simultaneous shootings. These were done over a number of years. And I met Bloodhound and he was uh, a black guy from Keith in Los Angeles. And he was a blood. I was just, you know, some white guy from Essex and we hit it off. We really got on well to the point that I, after we finished filming, I stayed on, spent a bit of time with him and got to know him. And I worked with him again, actually, on another documentary later on. But, um, there was an element of trust there. He was very ready to go. If anybody at that time, there was a massive war going on between Bloods and Crips in LA. And he had an AK-47 loaded to go. He had a sawn-off shotgun, pump, Remington. And he had a uh, Smith & Wesson tucked down the back of his pants in case either of those jammed. And I couldn't help thinking after I'd finished talking to him and properly getting to know him that this was a very bright man. He hadn't been very well educated, but he was a very bright man and he'd self-taught him a lot, self, a lot of stuff. And you could not think that if he hadn't been born where he was and experienced what he was, he could have been someone very, very different and maybe of a greater value to his community, and to his society. And, you know, he was at the antithesis of what I was seeing on MTV at the time. And we are talking nearly 20 years ago now. Right. But it was all about the bling. I remember people were wearing gold braces, that gold AK-47s. This certainly wasn't gold, but it was well-oiled, and he knew how to remove DNA off it using Vaseline and bleach. He was a professional gangster and a hero to many people in his community. So what I thought, you know, he didn't have the uh, blonde model for a wife. He had a very, very nice larger lady for a wife who had two kids on either hip, and he had a blocked toilet. He wasn't exactly living the gangster's dream, and I, and I thought that that if you could get that message out there, then it might dismiss some of the romanticism that, that has always been attached to gangsterism, whether it be Robin Hood, Dick Turpin, Al Capone, or someone in the street gang. There is an element of romance and attraction to people outside of it, but I can assure you, for many people, once they're in it, it's just a matter of survival and surviving for as long as you possibly can. And I'm always reminded of the statistics, particularly in the United States of America, where you know, you join a gang at the age of 14, 15, by the time you're 20s, there's a, something like a ridiculous, I think a 78% chance you'll either be in prison or dead. So those odds aren't particularly great and they're not particularly romantic either. Yeah, the odds are definitely not in the favor statistically. And with that, you know, you do get to the heart of the matter with a lot of your subjects. And you also are seeing some places that most people don't ever get to see in their lives and many that they don't dare to go to. What is that like for you when someone lets you into their world so deeply and shows you things like, here's my house, here's a clogged toilet, very not glamorous, very mm. honest and open and in a lot of ways relatable to many people. Yeah, I think, you, again, I got adjusted to it. I think human beings are very good at adapting 
through the history of humankind, we've always adapted. Uh, we're adapting now to COVID, I guess. What I got good at was getting my game face on when I got to the airport, meeting the team and going off. Again, I think you have to be, John, really honest, is you have to have an interest in those yeah. people and you have to be interested in not only the nice hotels, but also sometimes the more uncomfortable uh, billets that you get put in. And also, I have to say that the humour is something that I've always been attracted to as well. It may not look like I'm, I'm a laugh for a minute, but I often have <laughs> quite, you know, in extremists, you, you often find that human beings do find that, that humour is probably the best best way out. And well, I think we probably developed a gall gallows humour over the years, making documentaries in extreme locations or in hostile environments, whether it be, to say, being held at gunpoint for 24 hours in Libya or whether it be getting shot at on a roof in Karachi or shot at in Afghanistan or RPG'd in Afghanistan. There is always afterwards a number of jokes that will be had, generally at my expense. And I'm happy to be the butt of those jokes as long as we're all in one piece. And that's amazing. Now, speaking of being around guns so much, you know, I know being an actor, you're around guns on set, right? However, it's a very different experience than being in a true yes. combat environment getting shot at. Does that get easier for you over time? I mean, how do you keep your cool in situations like that? I don't. And often we have to cut out my smiling because it's my natural, and it sounds very arrogant, but it's not. It's just a natural reaction I have to loud bangs is that it makes my nerves go and I actually look like I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm probably not. I'm definitely not on the inside. Right. And there's nothing funny or, or amusing about, being on the ground when people die either. And sadly, I've, I've witnessed those things happen. But sometimes it's just my way of dealing with a stressful situation. And I do think you can become acclimatized to it after a while, particularly when we were in Afghanistan, where there was a point when I was with, um, with five Scots in Musakala, and we would go off on like three or four day compound hopping operations and you'd get eight contacts before eight o'clock with the enemy. And sometimes those bullets were very, very close. And it's amazing sometimes, to be honest, John, with how much lead's in the air and people don't get hurt. And then out of nowhere, just one shot's fired and someone's down. Yeah, there is no, often not much rhyme or reason to it. So do you get adjusted to it? I think you can get adjusted to it, but let's be really honest. It's not really attractive. It's not that fun. There's an adrenaline rush that probably is very difficult to equal, I would suggest, being in a full-on firefight. But afterwards, the sense of relief can lead to all sorts of emotions. I was sort of held at gunpoint once in Papua New Guinea by some people called rascals, which sounds rather funny. The rascals were after me. But the, the truth of the matter was it could have potentially been really, really ugly and could have resulted in a, a serious wound or death. And afterwards, I felt a bit like, I don't know if you've ever been burgled, but you, you feel violated slightly yeah. when someone else has been through your stuff. And I felt violated by what had happened afterwards. And I got quite angry. People often get angry after they've been burgled. And that's why I sort of felt like, you know, I didn't really hold anything against them. And I've never been really angered towards people that were shooting at me because it's not personal. It's like if you're in their if you're on their land and you're in their territory, then they're going to react probably in a hostile manner. You can't sit down and talk to people sometimes. You just have to see what happens when you're on the ground. Oh. That makes sense. I hope it does. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I mean, I was mugged once when I was like 17. And there's a certain air of unbridled anger when you mm. get out of it and a lot of like, what could I have done differently? How should I have reacted? And then, you know, you take it personally at first and then you realize you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time and you mm -hmm. have to let it go. And it's hard to let go of things like that. However, it's much more healthy to express and be open about your feelings than carry it with you for decades. 
Absolutely. And, and that's something that we learned actually from the Royal Marines and they learned it off the Blue Navy, which is a thing called trim trauma risk management. And we sort of adopted it and it became sort of a natural part of our unwind at the end of a day or at the end of a morning, whenever we finished filming, because often we'd film through the night, particularly if you're dealing with, with criminals, etc. You sit down and everybody gives a version of their day. And what that helps to do it stops people from enveloping stuff and sealing it away at the back of their head which can lead to, to various forms of post-traumatic stress or other forms of mental health issues and also it lets everyone else know where we stand so if I've got a, a grudge against Dave the sound man because I felt he should have come forward at a certain point when we were getting shot at and he didn't do it but he's saying the reason I was doing it because I couldn't move because there were people left or the, or the soldier next to me said I can't move you can't move then I know now I'm not thinking, oh, what's, you know, what's up with Dave? That's actually cleared the air. And I think it's a really important thing when you're in, in those kind of environments that there are no doubts at the back of your mind about the people that you work with. And also, if you screw up, it's much better to say sorry on the day than to hold it back and let it fester amongst everybody. It wasn't just me, it was a team thing, but we always wanted to say, look, if you screw up, just get it out of the way, apologise, let's move on. Then there's no grudges held. And also, you so see, you just can't afford to have those issues when you're, you know, trying to get a documentary in the can as quick as possible and get out of there as quick as possible. So speaking of getting documentaries in the can, what is it that helps you decide on what is your next documentary that you're going to make? It's often not me, to be honest, John. It's a um, broadcaster. I am um, often, it's the nature of the beast. You're held accountable to what they want or what they feel. I've been very lucky that through uh, the very broadcasters that I've worked with, that I was given a lot of freedom. It's often just what is the best story? What is a good story? Where is there good access? And you get to know people on the road. You get to know great journalists in countries. Like there's a good friend called Louis, who is a fantastic fixer for most of South America. And, you know, you could bump into him anywhere from, you know, Guatemala all the way down to Argentina. And he would know people on the ground that were prepared to talk and prepared to be open so long as we weren't going to tell the truth. The, the ugly truth, often, but tell the truth. So... Sometimes I'm able to make a decision, like I made a program about child sexual exploitation, I thought that was really important to make. I made a program about alcohol abuse, I thought that was important. We made one about gambling, I thought that was important. These are the ones in the UK. They're not often the most watchable documentaries, they don't necessarily have firefights or people with guns. But I think if you've got the opportunity to shine a light on something that often doesn't have the light shone on it, and you've got a broadcaster like ITV in this case who are prepared to go with it, then you're duty bound to make a film about such things because they're often just brushed under the carpet and forgotten. Well, that's brilliant. So we like to talk on the show about mentorship in a lot of ways and, you know, giving ideas and inspiration to younger people who might be trying to come up in the same style of business. And, you know, technology has come a long way from when you started making documentaries till now. Everyone has smartphones. Mm. You know, what mm. would your advice be to an aspiring documentary maker and presenter, knowing that they can get out there in real time with a 4K camera on their smartphone and make a documentary? Which they can, and, and often really well as well. So, yeah, I'm slightly jealous of that. I wish that had been around when I had started it's become less, well, because of cost, it's become less encumbered. There's not, you don't need all the hardware that we used to carry around these days. My advice is do it. I mean, it sounds like a Nike advert, doesn't it? But just go and experience it. Obviously, be careful. We don't just go running into favelas in Rio. We have sorted out our access before we go. Obviously, do it with a wise head. Don't be going in there 
uh, filming people unless you've got their permission or unless you're actually doing something. If you're doing something undercover, then obviously you don't need their permission. But um, I would suggest just do it. The more that you practice, the better that you get. And that goes for most things in life. And the luckier you get, I think that was a uh, Gary player said that the more I practice, the luckier I get. And, you know, just listen. I think the most important thing I'd say I've learned is it's not about what you think. It's about what the subject thinks. And if you give people enough time and you are genuinely interested in them, it doesn't matter where they're from in the world. They will often talk to you. Very cool. So what's next for Ross Gamp? Do you know what? I'm looking after my kids at the moment. That's what I'm doing at the moment. There is nothing directly on the horizon, which is quite interesting for me because I, I, I'm someone who likes to keep busy. I've got my own podcast, I do the Kempcast, but um, I'm sort of like driving everybody slowly mad in the household. <laughs> but in the, at the moment, I'm, there are things on the horizon for later on uh, in the year and very different from what I've been doing. But at the moment, in the immediacy, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, talking to you, John. That's what I'm doing. Fantastic. Well, everyone, this has been an amazing interview, and I'm so happy that we got to chat today. I highly recommend you check out the two-part documentary, Britain's Tiger Kings on the Trail with Ross Kemp. It's available on the ITV player right now. And with that, I will say to you, thanks for listening to Expert Minutes. I'm John McGuire. And remember, if your day job's not your dream job, keep hustling. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.